Hi, everyone. In this episode, we take a deep dive into cybersecurity and the ongoing evolution of the laws that regulate it. I'm your host, Bill Coffin, and this is The Ethicast. Today, we have a special episode for you. We have two guests whose combined expertise make them uniquely suited to discuss some of the most important facets of the ongoing evolution of cybersecurity regulation. Karen Evans is Managing Director of the Cyber Readiness Institute. For over 20 years, Karen has been at the forefront of cybersecurity policy with congressional and presidential appointed positions at the U.S. Department of Energy, U.S. Department of Homeland Security, and the Office of Management and Budget. Greg Sofer is a partner with the law firm Hush Blackwell. He counsels businesses and individuals in connection with a range of criminal, civil, and regulatory matters, including government investigations, internal investigations, litigation, export control, sanctions, and regulatory compliance. Prior to entering private practice, Greg served as the United States Attorney for the Western District of Texas, one of the largest and busiest United States Attorney's offices in the country. And now, without further delay, here's Karen and Greg as they discuss the latest in cybersecurity regulation. Enjoy. Well, hello, Greg. I'm excited to be talking to you today about several of these issues, especially as it relates to the SEC rule that's going to be going out and a lot of things that are happening or evolving or, from my perspective, finally happening in the cybersecurity area. Um, and, And I think as an attorney, I am most interested because I'm a technologist as to where do you see the balance and 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 as they're talking about these incidences and uh, a lot of times it's what is an incident, what's a major incident, what's a minor incident, when do I have to disclose? And the SEC is making it now material, saying it's a material uh, incident and, and maybe bringing some definition to that from your aspect, from a legal aspect. Yeah, well, I think that's one of the most interesting things about the, the rule itself um, is the the lack of clarity, actually, in terms of definitions. You know, any lawyer you know, can can chop up any term. Any any term can be debated in great details. Now, the consequences of getting that wrong are very significant. It starts right at the beginning with materiality. And the SEC's definition of materiality here um, does, although it, it claims to track and it does, according to, to the commissioners who voted for this, the rule itself discusses the fact that it tracks the traditional definition of materiality in the securities realm. Um, it does not give a clear definition on what a material incident or what, what kind of incidents could be material in, in, with any kind of real specificity. In fact, it discusses differences in terms of, of incidents between uh, potential strings of incidents or a series of incidents or a, a one single incident. And it's, it's, it's pretty clear that it doesn't actually require the company's information even to be stolen or for there to be a financial impact on the company's operations. So, and this is something I think is going to be debated and discussed. There was some initial discussion about aggregating unrelated incidents. Uh, that was dropped from the rule. Instead, uh, as, as I understand it, 
um, the, the company is going to have to very quickly in, in the context of a cybersecurity incident, determine what, or series of incidents, determine whether it's material under the new rule. And once it's determined that it's material, they have a very, very short fuse to actually do the reporting. But you're, I think you're, you're, you, you put your finger right on it right away is, you know, who's going to make that call? And how is that call going to be made from a legal standpoint? It's going to be very important that the company has a plan in place to deal with these kinds of incidents and a process to follow uh, with, with respect to determining whether or not they are material under these new rules for the public companies. Um, they're going to end up having to, to do this on a regular basis now. They're probably doing a lot of this already, but th I think this really puts a lot of pressure on companies to, to make those calls correctly. And so, again, you know, it, 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 it begs a number of the of most significant questions like who's going to make that determination? Is that determination going to be made by IT? Is that determination going to be made by the board? You're in this area. Uh, you work in it uh, on a regular basis. Uh, I'm, I'm interested to, to on, in terms of process, what's the right process here? Well, and I think you're you're actually hitting the nail on the head as well as like, what is the right process? And I think, I mean, I've been working in this, uh, I, I was telling you as we got started for over 20 some years, I've handled some of the major incidences within the federal government of how like to make some determinations. For example, at one point in my career, we had um, 26 million pieces of information that were lost. So now everybody's very familiar with PII, personally identifiable information, right? And so this was a laptop that was lost. Um, the employee, the researcher didn't do it on purpose. You know, they were authorized, the processes were in place, they were allowed to download the data, they were doing research. What didn't happen was the encryption on the laptop. So when the car was broken into, the laptop was stolen. So we ended up learning all kinds of stuff that happens in the commercial area in order to assess risk. And, and then the other part of that was, okay, what is the right process? And then who makes the determination? And I think the other piece that, that you hit on is this really is uh, an integrated business decision, especially for publicly traded companies. So it's not solely uh, the CIO's position, an IT decision. It's not solely a general counsel's decision within, um, within the business or just the board. Now, do I think all those people have to be notified? Absolutely. As soon as something happens, notification has to go out internally. And then um, you kick off the process, right? So that the assessments are happening. Uh, there's a lot of different ways that this can be looked at. And that's why I was asking like, how do you think of it as an attorney um, from a material aspect in the, in the federal government, um, you know, it's major incidences. And we used to have uh, debates, policy debates, because I come from an operational background about what actually is called an incident. Is it every time somebody attempts to see how weak your defenses are? So do you count those as incidences? You could because you're repelling those, right? Um, and, and it does make it look good because your defenses are working. Or, you know, do you look at it from every time there's unauthorized access to, to data? You could, 
you're supposed to look at that. That's now called insider threat. Um, but then making the determination of what is the right balance that you have to have within that company, within that agency to be really able to manage it and then be able to disclose it. Uh, I think one of the things, and I, I'd like to really hear your thought on this, especially uh, for publicly traded companies, the four day time limit for disclosure. And, and when do you think that that actually starts? Because you're seeing a lot, and, and I wanna talk a little bit about the Meridian Link issue here with uh, the ransomware piece. You're seeing how this can actually be used by criminals to actually force publicly traded companies to do things that they may not necessarily be ready to do or should do from that perspective. Yeah, I mean, we could we could actually spend the entire Ethicast just talking about any one of these particular issues, but just to go back to, to the materiality question, which, which you posed. The language inside the rule says that it's material if there is substantial likelihood that a reasonable shareholder would consider it important in making an investment decision, or if it would have significantly altered the total mix of information made available. Well, you know, as an attorney, I could sit here and oh, there's a lot of movement and a lot of squishy terms in, in, in those phrases. And again, there's some case law and decisional uh, information out there that would help people make those determinations. But this is a very, this is not a black and white kind of question. And it's a very different, it's answered differently by different companies in different contexts and different businesses and different sectors of the economy. And so, again, I think it's very hard to make that decision quickly. The commission wants that decision, those decisions to be made um, and erring on the side of disclosure appears to me to be the way the rule is written. And so immediately when something like this happens from, from the, the question you asked from an attorney standpoint, uh, I'm, I'm going back to what is the process? How are we documenting that process? How are we protecting that process? Uh, from the government seeing it, if we don't want the government to see it ultimately, and that goes back to whether it should be privileged or not, a law firm should be engaged to do this, how many lawyers should be involved, versus the business aspects of this, as, you're, as we're beginning to peel back the onion, keeping the business running, uh, making determinations about what kinds of hardening needs to take place and, and who's going to be involved in this. And then, you know, you try to apply this between a company that has 30 employees or 300 employees or 50,000 employees. Um, it's very, very difficult. And so, I mean, presumably the publicly traded companies have very significant IT departments who spend a lot of time working on all these protocols and, and, and having all of this in writing. But if you're not documenting the process itself and somebody wants to come and look under the hood later, um, you have to think about what of that is going to be ready for publication, if you will, um, not only in the disclosures, because that's another piece of the rule, but also um, to the government if it ever comes knocking on an enforcement decision. Several of us, you know, in my area, we've been working on this for years and uh, especially as I said on different boards, um, I love being on the audit committee, which people think is really kind of crazy, but I do love being on the audit committee because it's all about risk. And everything that I hear you talking about is how does the board actually manage risk? Because it's going to be different for different sectors. 
Um, your risk tolerance is going to be different. If you don't really, and, and I think the profile, and, and I'd love to hear your opinion on this, the profile changed when we went because we experienced COVID. And once we experienced that, anybody, they really, no company, I don't care where you are, they have now realized how exposed they are through supply chain risk management issues, who their suppliers are. Um, how dependent they are on technology because of the way that work had to shift, um, which was great from an aspect of being uh, an IT professional. All of these things that we were uh, talking for the years and trying to make the arguments of, you know, why you had to have a modernized structure, why you, you know, like you, you've heard them from us, CIOs going on, well, we need VPNs, we need this, we have to have dynamic address. And we kind of go through all of this different stuff, but you got to experience it. And those companies that embraced modernization, that understood the use of technology, right, that understood their risk, pivoted faster than companies um, who had to really understand like, holy smokes, my infrastructure is really important. And I um, may have under uh, invested through the years because I had made other business decisions. So so I think that, that you're hearing a lot of that and you see a lot of that and boards are sensitive to it. But I um, also see the other part of this and this is still into the material you know, the disclosure, how you do this, um, of where they really view the uh, chief information security officer or the chief security officer, or is it all under a chief risk officer? And how does that entity or entities then interact with the board so that the board from an independent standpoint is really assessing the risk? Because you said it really comes down to hey, would this affect a stockholder, a shareholder, how they would invest, right? So all of that is disclosure. And ultimately, in my view, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is the board is responsible for making sure those questions um, are asked of management and that the management is accurately or to the extent possible managing the risk for the shareholders. So, you know, it's like under an audit committee, I really don't think that people can say, well, it's cybersecurity stuff. You know, we, we, it's the IT shop. It's not the IT shop anymore. And I would love to hear what you had to say, especially, you know, based on your vantage point of how you're analyzing the environment now. Yeah, I mean, well, there's a, several questions baked into that. I mean, um, having your own IT department handle this, even when they're very good and very responsive, I think is extremely dangerous under these circumstances. To have outsiders come in, um, both potentially a law firm and a cybersecurity company who um, are, are able to work together seamlessly, it ends up being a much safer way of handling this as a general matter, only because, again, there's gonna be issues about privilege you have to believe that if you if you guess wrong here under these circumstances and the SEC initiates an enforcement action, be absolutely devastating to your company, much worse potentially than the, the cyber incident itself by, by leaps and bounds. 
And so, you know, I think companies looking at that will will want to make sure that they're doing this in a way that is protected as possible and insulates them as much as possible from some sort of criticism coming from the government. Um, on, on the other hand, uh, you know, when the government starts looking at this, and this is something that um, there was a really interesting uh, dissenting opinion, if you will, from Commissioner Hester Pierce about this particular uh, regulation. And one of the first things uh, that she talked about is that the SEC is, is not a cybersecurity agency, is not qualified to make a lot of these decisions. And they're, they're there to protect investors, the integrity of the markets, and that they've overstepped their bounds. Um, and I, that there could be unintended consequences of this. One of the unintended consequences could be that as they review this and as they do engage in enforcement actions, that there'll be what they what is called herding, that people, companies will look at the at what the whatever company either survived or didn't survive the enforcement action and say, well, that must be good enough for the SEC. So we need to adopt those practices and policies. And uh, the, what, what she said was that this, this is wrong, that as you pointed out, companies in different sectors have different risks and different ways of having to respond to them. And so to me, again, I think this it begins to answer your question. You, know, uh, you, you have got to be mostly concerned at the beginning given this rule about what it's going to look like when it gets, when someone comes and looks in the hood under the hood later. But, you know, the rule is only one tiny piece really of a cybersecurity incident response. You know, the, the number one response needs to be to try to plug the gap um, and to, and to mitigate the damage. And if this is just adds a yet another thing for the company to do, which is another thing that the, the dissenting commissioner said, she said that you're going to distract companies from a, a, at a very critical time. You know, the first 48 hours of a cyber incident, probably the most important of, of all of all the time. And if you're adding to this list, getting getting all the compliance with this rule and trying to consider whether or not you're going to make a public disclosure of, of the incident. It's just going to slow things down. So her other argument, another another aspect of what she's saying is you're really facilitating um, the bad guys out there, the, the, the bad actors out there, because in addition to giving them a blueprint of what you're doing, which is another thing required by the rule, and then having to make such quick determinations and disclosures about what's happening and how you're responding to it. You know, I'm sure you know this much better than I. During the incident, it's highly likely that the bad actors watching your response. In fact, a number of the attacks are just probes to see what the company is going to do and how it's going to respond. And and it, it's sort of like you know, I, I prosecuted a lot of uh, heavy-duty drug cases or violent crime cases, and we it wasn't it wasn't so strange to find out that the the gangs or the cartels were reading the court dockets to see what was going on. The same is true here, even more so, much more so. You have much more sophisticated actors watching as people develop strategies to handle the threats. And all this does is put more information out, that, out there for them to, to look at. So this balancing test of disclosing and how much information needs to be disclosed and how quickly and how detailed it is um, versus giving, giving the bad actors even more information about how your company is hardened 
and how they can get around your protections, I think is a fascinating and, and again, a fairly dangerous scenario. We've been debating this for over 20 years. We've been arguing about, um, you know, what do you disclose? When do you disclose it? Is it major? What is due diligence? What is the foundation? It's the same argument about what is um, cyber hygiene. If you talk to 20 IT professionals, cybersecurity professionals, they'll give you a bunch of different definitions, but they'll all agree that, hey, there's some basic business practices that we can do right up front that would stop 80% of these issues that would stop 90% of these issues. Simple things like multi-factor authentication. People go, oh my gosh, that sounds so hard. You're using it every day. Like people are using it every day and they don't realize they're using it every day because they're tied with their cell phone and they get the code to their cell phone, right? And then they put the second factor in. And so there's gotta be ways that technology can help do this? And do you think that the rule is going to help change that behavior? Because it's been, I mean, I, I can argue both sides of everything that you've said for the last 20 some years. Yeah, I, again, I, as you point out, the, the proof will be in the, in the actual application of the rule, how aggressively uh, the SEC follows up on it, and whether or not the dissent, um, a, a, as written by, as I've described, is has got better points it, it's how do you do it not whether you should i don't think anybody in the current environment would say to anyone we need less cybersecurity or we need less um, people being vigilant about it the question is whether the sec should be the point of the spear here they're only one part of a very large community of governmental agencies who are engaged in cybersecurity and and the monitoring of cybersecurity and so it's a question whether the SEC is out too far in front and whether or not these particular disclosures under these particular circumstances are the right way with this kind of timing is the right way of doing things. I mean, again, I think my concern would be the lack of definition in these terms and the potential value that some of these disclosures have for the bad actors. It, it's 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 not to me um, a sliding. It doesn't provide enough of a sliding scale. And I think again, if I'm advising companies about what to do, I'm telling them you have to prepare for the worst here. And the worst is that the SEC is going to come in and they're going to you're going to get subpoenas and you're going to be in the middle of an enforcement action. Now, if instead the rule is applied, you know, carefully and it it really is only applied to truly sort of bad actors in the corporate world, that is people completely ignoring the risk and, and being unwilling to put the resources and effort into trying to combat the cyber threat, because it is clearly something that affects the, the stockholders and the shareholders in the company. That's different. You know, that's different. And, and, and we have seen some examples of that um, in, in corporate America here and there, people who have just tried to ignore it or tried to deep six um, the, the, the reporting on a threat. That's a serious problem. Um, and so, again, I, I do think it'll be the application of the rule and how the SEC goes forward. It'll also be interesting to see how it works when combined with the rest of the interagency in the government, because you have the intelligence community involved in this. You have the law enforcement community involved in this. Um, there is a there is an exemption in the rule for a very, very small exemption in the rule under very, very particular unusual circumstances 
for uh, a delay in reporting if the attorney general signs a piece of paper that says you don't have to do it. And that's gonna likely be done in consultation with other agencies as well, including the FBI. And so if you're an FBI agent and you're doing cybersecurity criminal investigations, and suddenly now the victim is forced under the SEC rule to make a disclosure and you wanna keep the investigation quiet so you can catch the people doing it, this regime may not be the best way for it to proceed. And again, we won't know how this plays out until we start seeing the application of the rule in real life, real world scenarios in different sectors of business and under different circumstances. Well, and I think you highlight a lot of um, the discussion points that have happened. This administration also says that they want to rationalize the the regulations, right? Um, and we all all know that there are different authorities being applied across the different agencies that you're talking about. So the intelligence agencies have one set of authorities and a different goal versus the law enforcement, you know, and not just FBI, but Secret Service, how they're all involved in this, um, up to uh, DHS with um, CISA, how they're supposed to help, and, you know, the administrative subpoena authorities that they want to have going forward. And so there's, you know, they have different issues in order to be able to to be to really be able to ascertain and this is part of the challenge i think that private industry um faces depending on the sector that you're in and i had the opportunity to work on these issues as well as okay i'm going to follow the government um i'm going to follow the government lead but i need a certain amount of liability protections if i'm going to do xyz and so if a regulation is telling me to do one thing and then um, I'm part of a bigger cyber threat that's happening as it relates to a nation state, for example. Um, I need some kind of liability protections as it goes forward in order for me to make the right business decisions because of the impact that it's going to have on the communities, not just my shareholders, but the impact that it's going to have on the communities. And, and uh, I, this is probably the first step in that direction. I know Congress has talked a lot about, you know, hey, you have to have these disclosures. People need to know what's going on, right? So you're trying to get ahead of these things. But um, I know in my interactions with industry and talking to the CEOs of these companies, especially when I worked at Energy, for them to make some of these hard decisions, it's going to affect communities. Like if they reroute power to do things um, that Congress gave them the authority to do because we have to defend the nation, what happens about the VA hospital that's right within that that uh, radius, right? Or the private hospital or the schools or the nursing home. Like these companies uh, are really looking at that and you're seeing how this is playing out in a larger discussion across the nation um, about, hey, what is the right balance between what government should be doing and what private industry should be doing? Because a lot of this infrastructure and a lot of these services are not owned by the government. The government is a major user, but private industry is the major provider. So, so how does that go forward? Um, I, I just think uh, we've just hit the tip of the iceberg in looking at a lot of these things. Um, my question to you would be for the Ethisphere uh, audience here, what key takeaway do you wanna give? Well, again, my, my key, key takeaway here is going to be making sure that you have a plan. If, I, if there was one thing that I would say you have to do, you have got to have a plan. And the plan has to consider everything we've talked about. 
And then the plan has to be properly resourced because I think the, one of the worst things that can happen, we've said this many times to, to, to in, in my podcast and anywhere else is worst thing you could have it have is a beautiful plan put in a beautiful binder that no one has practiced, that no one has resourced, that no one has tweaked, that no one updates, because all that does is show the government and the regulators that you knew what to do, but you didn't do it and you didn't, and you didn't pay attention to it. That's the worst thing you could do. So having a plan and having the appropriate experts come in and help advise you about that plan is going to help inoculate you against criticism going forward. To not have a plan, to not properly emphasize the plan, to make sure that corporate leadership's aware of the plan and knows what to do when one of these things happens, I think is, is, the, is the most dangerous scenario, particularly in an, in an environment with increased regulation and increased enforcement by agencies like but not limited to the SEC. I'm going to build on your key takeaway about the plan. Uh, I'm going to say I agree with everything that you said about the plan, but I'm going to take it up a notch that the plan shouldn't just be developed, uh, you know, with outside folks, but the, the plan actually needs to be developed with the leadership all the way up to the CEO, board members, everybody, the plan, people have to know their roles and responsibilities. And I think the key thing that I'd like to follow up on that, that you talked about that I is near and dear to my heart is exercising the plan. The time to find out that your plan is not a gray plan is not in the middle of the incident. The time to find out that your great your plan needs to improve is like every six months or you know every year that you exercise the plan and you update the plan so that to your point that it can be properly resourced. But it's an integrated effort all up and down the chain. So you can ask the CIO to be the lead, but the CIO better have really good interpersonal communication skills and really good access to key leadership so that that plan is the plan that when it happens, because it's not, it's not going to be if, it's when it happens that your company can properly respond and, and take into consideration all these other things that are in place. Because I agree with you, Greg, if you have the plan, it's documented, you show the exercises and there's areas where it can improve, nobody's going to hold that against you. But if you have a plan that you've never exercised and it's not properly resourced, I mean, it's going to be a bad write-up. It's going to be really bad. <laughs> and so it's just like, no, I'm, I'm 100% with you. So I, I really appreciate you sharing your insights today. I really enjoyed learning from you. Well, I learned from you, Karen, and uh, it was great talking to you, and I hope we can do it again. To experience Hush Blackwell's wide range of thought leadership, visit hushblackwell.com to learn more about their white-collar, internal investigations, and compliance team, as well as their data privacy and cybersecurity team. And while you're there, be sure to check out their podcast, The Justice Insiders, the latest episode of which is Incidents in the Material World, SEC Adopts New Cybersecurity Rules. And for a wide array of guides, tips, and white papers that empower small and medium-sized enterprises to be more secure and resilient in the face of cyber risk, please visit the Cyber Readiness Institute at cyberreadinessinstitute.org. And for even more resources about information governance, privacy, and cybersecurity, please visit the Ethisphere Resource Center at ethisphere.com. I'm Bill Coffin, and this has been the Ethicast. For more episodes, please visit the Ethisphere YouTube channel at youtube.com slash ethisphere. 
And if this is your first time enjoying the show, please make sure to like and subscribe either on YouTube or on our podcasting platforms at Apple, Spotify, Google, and Amazon Music. Thanks so much for joining us. And until next time, remember, strong ethics is good business.